Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Chris, today we're bringing on another guest, a friend of the program, Bob Sontag. Bob is an architect, he's an artist, and we've had some conversations in the last few weeks that just prompted me to invite him to come on. He's got a deep appreciation for mythic art and sacred art and just the whole genre of myth itself. And as it overlaps with ritual, that's our wheelhouse. And we just thought, you know, that'd be a good person to invite on. And so, Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. You bet. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Give us the uh, 10,000 foot view. Sure. Well, I was uh, brought up Latter-day Saint. I still am one. And I'm in uh, in the Salt Lake area. I've got a wife and two boys, and I'm trying hard to do right by them. So, Amen. Yeah. And you say you live in the Salt Lake area there, and so you grew up in Salt Lake, lived in Utah your whole life? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the, uh, in the avenues, and so I was baptized in the tabernacle, actually. Oh, wow. That's an experience. I'm down in Mill Creek now. But uh, yeah, so that was my neighborhood growing up. Bob, you want to talk a little bit about art today and myth and ritual? These are things that have been on your mind and they're always on our mind. When I first became acquainted with you, I was reading some articles that I'm trying to remember. It's been probably a year or two. You wrote some articles about the canon of scripture. Do you remember that? So I wrote an article called Oracles, and I dealt with the idea of scripture as oracle versus person as oracle. I'm trying to think what else what else I would have written that dealt with. That was it. That was the one. That was it. Okay. Yeah. It was about oracles. Yeah. And how there's been sort of an evolution over the last, I don't know, 100 years or whatever that the oracles, which used to be pretty much exclusively known as the canonical scripture, has gradually shifted to be a person now. Yes. Right? Yeah. Isn't that kind of the gist which, of it? Yeah. It, ha- it happened actually pretty rapidly with the death of Joseph Smith. When the term oracle is used in Latter-day scripture, scripture through Joseph Smith, it almost exclusively, I'm trying to think of any exceptions now after you know a year or two after writing that article, but it refers to the written text itself. That's what's authoritative. And Joseph is bound by that text as much as anybody else. He bequeaths those texts to the church, and, and we're cautioned in the in the scriptures, beware how you receive them. Don't treat them lightly, you know, and don't trifle with them. After Joseph dies, the use of the term oracle, and you can you can look it up in journal of discourses or whatever, they use it in the term like living oracles. And it comes up really powerfully in Brigham Young, who who recounts a story which I don't know the full truth of it, but he claims he was in a meeting where Hiram Smith was 
saying, you know, the scriptures forbid polygamy and we don't do it. We're not going to do it. And in Brigham's narrative, this is before Hiram was initiated. And Joseph has his head in his hands because, oh, Hiram is railing against polygamy. And so Joseph nudges Brigham and he says, Brigham, get up, get up, say something. And so Brigham lays down the Bible and he lays down the Book of Mormon and he lays down the Doctrine and Covenants. And he says, I wouldn't give the ashes of a rice straw for these scriptures in comparison to the living oracles of God, meaning living leaders. So this is Brigham Young speaking, you know, decades later, looking back. And so he's inserting the word oracle to mean church leader as though that had been the common use during Joseph Smith's life. But the significance of the move in my article, in my view, is it locates authority instead of in scripture. It locates authority in the body of the living leader. I guess why that matters is because truth is no longer your primary currency. And something is true so long as it's in favor. And then when it's out of favor, it's discarded. At somebody's death, everything that they taught, which was authoritative and the words of an oracle, is now subject to revision to being discarded entirely. So it certainly affords a person a great deal of freedom if that's your desire to guide the narrative, to guide policy and practice however you want, because you're not bound to a text as though it were authoritative. One might argue that we're never completely bound to text because we're not scriptural, inerrant you know, believers. Sure. Yeah. What we are cautioned to do is to be careful how we receive them and don't trifle with them, which I don't think means don't subject them to close scrutiny and analysis. Right. But it's almost as if we have a, like a three-legged stool and they, and they all ought to somewhat work together, right? So you've got scripture as as at least one leg of that stool and and then you've got uh modern prophets and and you can call them living oracles or whatever and then maybe personal revelation is another one of those legs of the stool things work best when everything is in unison maybe or there tends to be some correlation there sure but i i get what you're saying it's a very presentist approach to canon because essentially by saying someone's a living oracle, that's comparing them to scripture and saying that the words that coming out of their mouth are essentially scripture. And we've heard that so many times that general conference addresses are scripture for us in our day, right? Even though they're not canonized, that we're to treat them on the same level foot. It used to say that inside the front leaf of the conference edition of the Ensign, that conference editions should sit next to the scriptures on the shelf for the next six months, essentially. And then, I mean, Elder Bednar at a meeting a couple of years ago said, I am scripture, oh, yeah. which is essentially sums it up in three words. You well, know? Bruce R. McConkie used to say the same thing. There was the the argument he had, I believe, with Eugene England, and uh, you know, there's the, the back and forth letters between those guys. And in one of those letters, I remember reading because Professor England wanted to make an appeal to, you know, authority and, and say, let's take this to the first presidency or whatever. And I, I would love, and he said, I am the authority, you know, and when, mm-hmm. when it comes to interpreting scripture, I am the authority. This is just history. So I'm not bashing one side or the other or favoring one side or the other, even though I have my opinions, but like that, that sounds very much like what you just described with Elder Bednar. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Well, anyway, that's a little off topic, but that's how I became acquainted with you. And then when I found, so I, I stalked your Facebook page a little bit and, <laughs> and I was just looking at your, your art that you post and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Most of it is in black and white. And I thought that would be a perfect setup for like a, a coloring book. Yes. And turns out that was the reason you did it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So the art grew out of something I'm trying to do for my kids. I mentioned I'm trying to do right by my kids and wife. And that's true going back before I met any of them. 
I thought as I was going through college, like, I want to be an architect, but I am a husband and father. That's what I was made for. I felt that just in my heart. Uh, a couple of years ago, early in the pandemic, you know, I've got two young boys and I realize, you know, good as my upbringing was, I really lucked out with very loving and involved parents. I didn't really know how to be a dad for myself. I couldn't live life doing an impression of my dad. I had to really like try and catch a vision, integrate. How do I deal with kids? How do I bring them upright? What does that look like? To make sure I don't miss this precious opportunity to set them up for, you know, whatever life has in store for them. And I know I'm not going to nail it, but what I want is a vision. And I think the way that I framed it at the time was if I could see Zion for just like an hour and observe how do parents deal with their kids? Because kids aren't different in Zion. They're just kids, right? How do they deal with the ordinary behaviors of children? How do they deal with guiding and channeling that beautiful thing that a child is in Zion? Because I know I can't really picture it. I don't get it. I don't have the pattern of Zion in my head. So I was wrestling with that. And a friend pointed me toward a talk where the speaker was discussing the function of temples in Mormonism. And the anticipated function of like a temple in Zion, taking a look back at what Joseph Smith was doing, a look forward at what the scriptures prophesy eschatologically. And the talk mentioned some yearly festivals, and it sort of mentioned them in passing, a yearly festival where the creation hymn was sung. And I realized, like, I'd heard this festival discussed, but I didn't know anything about it. So I chased the references through the footnotes, and it took me to some of Hugh Nibley's work, where he really outlined it in depth with a lot of great examples of what ancient people used to do all over the world. So there are sites like Stonehenge or Newspaper Rock, Avebury in England, the pyramids in Egypt or, or Heliopolis. Even in Iceland, there's the Valley of Gathering, the Thingvalir. And they all did roughly the same thing. Everybody would gather to the sacred site. They would gather up in a circle or in a hierarchically arranged group. They would read the law. They would dissolve covenants if they needed to be dissolved, form covenants if they needed to be formed. There would be ritual reenactment of creation. There would be coronation of the new king or ritual sacrifice and rebirth of the old king. And the same motifs kind of dominate all over the world. And I was pretty blown away because I knew a lot of those things in isolation, but I hadn't put them together into the archetype yet. One of the other things you'll see in a lot of those prehistoric or early historic megalithic uh, sites or whatever is an orientation towards astronomy or in some cases mm. astrology, you know, if, if yeah. you're looking at it from that perspective. The stars and the surroundings, the cosmos was always part of the organization of those original sites. Yes. The pyramids, no exception. You know, the major archaeological sites throughout the ancient world were all oriented around stars, constellations, basically the heavens. Mm -hmm. and, and that oriented all of the ritual as well. That helped to determine how the ritual was going to play out. And the different actors and actions that were involved in those rituals is, is the connection with the cosmos. Absolutely. And I see some of that in your artwork as well. You know, it's, it's circular. There's a, an element of math to it. But at the same time, it, it doesn't spell anything out explicitly. There's a lot of room for interpretation in that. And at some point, we'll have to describe some of your artwork. What you said about astronomy and astrology, Riley, reminded me of what we said about alchemy. I think it was Morgan who actually said it when we were talking with Morgan about alchemy, which is 
moderns think that, you know, alchemists, they didn't know what they were doing. They're proto-chemists. And he turned that around. And we know better than that, right? We know that when alchemy becomes chemistry, it becomes denuded of its deeper meaning. And so I think astronomy and astrology work in much the same way, right? Astrology is something more than astronomy. And astronomy is indeed scientific. And astrology is something else. Well, astrology, I agree completely. Astrology is astronomy plus myth. So it's in addition to the movements of the and the patterns of the heavens. In addition to that, we have myth and story. And that's what connects people to the cosmos. It's the stories that actually connect people. Those archetypal stories are what connect people to their heritage, you know, their ancestors, creation itself, God in many cases. And so we have our own stories in the Bible, and yet we act like the ones that aren't in the Bible that are somewhat similar are like less significant or maybe even silly or parochial. You can call them whatever you want. And we just say, you know, those those are just those are fairy tales. The astronomical and astrological element was central to these sacred sites because the purpose was, as you say, to join the present and historical to the mythic or to the heavenly and timeless. And so you needed a point both in space and in time when the eternal and the present can come together. And so there are four pillars of time in the passing of the seasons. There's the equinoxes and there's the solstices. And at each of those moments, time could be said to stand still. One equinox joins with all other equinoxes or one solstice joins with all other solstices in the collapse of time. So it joins the present festival to the eternal moment, which is fascinating because what I saw was there were numerous examples of this archetype in scripture and the best, most complete ones came through Joseph Smith. He was channeling this, this archetype through his visions and his revelations. And what, what I noticed, you know, it wasn't exactly big in his environment at the time, as far as I can tell, upstate New York, early 1830s, but the divine council he described and envisioned as a year right, as a year festival. So the king makes a proclamation. He invites everybody to come. Some come willingly, some come unwillingly, and with a goal to depose the king. The new king is to be crowned. The old king is passing the torch. There's a new creation that's going to happen. They all sing together in joy. There's ritual combat with the expulsion of the pretender. Lucifer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Joseph described a year right, well, he described many, but he described one in particular that was the eternal moment. And that, it turns out, you know, is very much what Hebrews had in mind in First and Second Temple Judaism, is a worldview where there was God, one God, but he was surrounded by a heavenly host in a divine council, in numberless concourses, in an eternal celebration, ever ongoing. You know, I'm reminded, Bob, when you talk about time standing still and having this happen cyclically and the rebirth of the king, all of this reminds me of the myth of the eternal return by Mircea Eliade and and what it did for me and my experience of the temple where we think we're going to the temple to learn about the creation, where really what we're doing is we're recreating the cosmos. We're bringing ourselves out of chaos back into order. And there's, you know, there's vocabulary, there are things that we say that that seem to indicate this, right? That that's implicit in it. I'm trying to make it explicit. No, you're not going to the temple to learn about the creation. You're going to the temple to recreate the cosmos out of the chaos that is your life. 
Yes. So that was the first lesson that I drew out of that study of the archetype. I went through and I traced it through the scriptures and I found that so many of the key narratives in scripture are actually year right narratives. The Passover, all Passovers are a New Year celebration for the Hebrews. And that goes back even before the Israelites. Abraham's meeting with the two angels and with Yahweh, where he's promised Isaac the following year. That's a feast narrative in Jewish tradition. He's trying to find anybody who's still on the pilgrim road that needs to be brought into the feast. And he can't find anybody and he's exhausted and he's just been circumcised and he's old. And then he's lying in the heat of the day in his tent and the Lord comes and makes the promise. What they do is they need a whole like 50 pounds worth of fresh cakes and cook them up and they and they kill a lamb and provide a feast, right? And then the angels go down to Sodom and it's Lot's hospitality in contrast to the violence of the people of Sodom that saves his family. So you have like an ontological hierarchy with Abraham up on the heights and Lot down in the plains and Abraham's holiness and hospitality are superior to Lot's. And so the blessing of recreation and new life that he receives is shown to be better than the blessing of recreation and new life that Lot receives. Later, you have the, the primal Passover narrative in the, the one that everybody recognizes as a Passover narrative in Egypt, where you have the same ontological hierarchy as, you know, Abraham versus Sodom. But now it's Moses versus the Egyptians, where Moses is inviting Pharaoh, let my people go three days journey into the wilderness so that they can hold a feast or else sword and famine and pestilence will come. Yeah, it wasn't let my people go permanently. It was like, just let us go reenact this festival that is a tradition for us. So it's our it's our ritual worship, right? That was the original request. Yes. And, and Egypt's penalty for not allowing that is the opposite of creation. Creation rebels against them and unmakes itself, unwinds around them. And all the elements, air, earth, fire, and water flip on their heads against them. In narratives like that, that we don't recognize the feast aspect of because we're not in the mode of feasting. We're not in the rhythm of the yearly feast, exactly. We might overlook it and overlook how the archetype weaves its way through scripture. One of the things that I mentioned on our sister podcast, LDPS Presents Come Follow Me, is that I wanted to, as we went through the Old Testament, I wanted to get a handle on these feast days because I'd seen a friend who actually had on the podcast to podcast on the Song of Solomon with me. That was uh, Colonel Pastor Tracy Roberts. I saw him get a handle on this, and he pointed out that everything that Jesus does in his life, all the significant events in his life, happen on feast days. So I don't know that I really got a handle on it when I went through the Old Testament, but here's here's the second chances as we go through the New Testament. Thanks for the reminder. Sure. And then Nephi and Lehi's departure from Jerusalem happens during a feast. It's very much that narrative with Nephi's candidate kingship, and then multiple opposers and usurpers coming along. And it ends with him, you know, like Christ, in the cavity of a rock at the point of death, and then an angel is sent, and Nephi has his resurrection and triumph after that. Right. And that reminds me, too, we mentioned on on Come Follow Me, uh, on our other podcast, you know, that it seems that this is happening around the time that the Deuteronomists are saying you can only sacrifice here at the temple, which in this conversation actually makes sense, right? That there would be the cosmic mountain and, the you know, the axis that connects heaven and earth. But that can be anywhere. You know, Riley's talking about other people's traditions. The sacred mountain, the cosmic mountain, the center of the world is not one place, right? This is a symbol. 
what did Father Lehi do? He goes out three days and builds an altar, just like Moses did. And the priests are trying to sort of take a stranglehold on, on how, when, and where these things are done. And he's saying no. And this could be why he left. Yeah, the book of First Nephi positions Nephi and Lehi very carefully, systematically in opposition to the reforms of the Deuteronomists. Like not just the sacrifice issue and where you can worship, but like who you worship and whether you can see God at all. These things start being tackled on page one, like three verses in when Nephi is like, I had a great desire to know the mysteries of God, where Deuteronomy says, no, leave the secret things to the Lord and just let us obey the law. Nephi saying, now, I want the old religion with the, the mysteries and all. That's typified as well as he hears the account from his father of his dream. Even though it's explained about as explicitly as Lehi can manage, that's not good enough for Nephi. He wants his own mystical explanation of that event. He wants to understand it at its deepest level. And the only way to do that is to experience it himself. And so the whole scene is played out for him again later on. Yeah, and that's that's the essence of the feast, is the making eternally present and real things that are transcendent. The art grew out of one particular year rite, which is in 3rd Nephi, where Christ visits the Nephites at the temple. That happens, you know, about the year anniversary of his death, just into the new year. And again, is a classic year right narrative with the king visiting, and it's God visiting, which was another element of the year right. Even the, the Icelandic people, they called the one who led the year right feast the head god. And then they called the other dignitaries who were involved with the reading and establishing the law, they called them gods. So anyway, God visits Christ, comes from heaven, reestablishes civilization, reads the law, establishes covenants. And one of the things he does is he guides the Nephites through this ritual. They're now too tired to learn through words. And so he says, bring your children to me. And they bring the children close to him with the parents standing on the outside. He blesses them. He prays for them. And it's very clear. The text is clear. Christ is standing in the midst. And then he says, everybody stand up. Behold, you little ones. And the text, again, clear about the geometry, says that angels encircle the children and fire encircles the angels. The problem is we're, we're reading this text, and this may not be the case with you, Chris, or maybe even you, Riley, but for me, I am descended from many hundreds of years of iconoclasts. And all, all my ancestors in every direction, as far as I can tell, were Protestants, children of Protestants. And so I'm blind to formal religion, even when it's described explicitly. I had never seen this diagrammed. I'd never seen it drawn. I'd seen paintings of it, Christ blessing the children, but they were always informal, meaning that it looked like a loose, unstructured gathering of people. Wasn't a ritual. Wasn't a ritual, right? No. But after having familiarized myself with the feast archetype, I knew the ritual to a degree. The Greek word for this feast was the panegyrus, meaning the gathering of all in a circle. And that word is used in the New Testament, and it's translated in the King James Version, the general assembly, meaning like the general assembly and church of the firstborn. It's actually the panegyrus and church of the firstborn. So the image of heaven was this circular celebration, all gathered in circles, numberless concourses or concentric circles around the throne of God. So Christ was gathering the Nephites into circles. It's explicit in the text. And it was a structured circle with children, then angels, then fire, 
and then their parents. And I was like, oh man, that clearly matters. You know, it clearly matters. I could see it clearly in my head. And then this year I came to a realization at the end of like a year of, of study early this year, end of last year, I realized, okay, I, I kind of get what I'm after for my kids. I get the pattern that's underneath Zion. This image is what's beneath all of the activity that happens in the city of God. This image of the harmonious overlay and interplay of patterns of love and goodwill and celebration and rejoicing, that's the spirit of Zion. And it was like seeing that image gave me what I needed, at least in the immediate term for my kids. And that's become sort of the template for, it doesn't mean that there's like a repeated image necessarily in your artwork, but what you're describing to me very much looks like this pattern or template that you use as the philosophical foundation of your artwork is ritual and the interplay of you know religion into that with myth included in that and and taking the stories like one of my favorite that you did is is the nakedness of noah because it doesn't look anything like the way it's described in the old testament in terms of oh you know his son ham walks in on him and he's naked and he's drunk and Maybe you call it the drunkenness. No, I can't remember, but it looks nothing like that. It looks like a ritual being performed and Ham is a participant in this and the curses that come about as a result of it are part of the ritual as well. It all seems like it's playing out against the backdrop of ritual. Yeah. There's a strong through line through the stuff I've been drawing. Bob, I'm dying to know, and I, I think I can speak for the listener on this one. I've seen your art. Hopefully the, the listener will have that experience too. What does it look like when your family gathers in the living room and what happens? <laughs> Conceptually, it's a circle. It's hard to make a six and a three-year-old do anything. I'm trying to let the meaning that's underlying the art also inform the meaning underlying how I gather them in ritual because I've understood it's my job with my wife's partnership to gather my family in the right praise of God. And I very much want our worship together to reflect that. What I don't want to do is rush headlong into formality that's stilted, artificial, coerced, or, or imposed artificially. And I, I want my family and I to see eye to eye in the establishment of the ritual. And so there are steps I'm making. But when we gather as for family prayer, we try and kneel. It's essentially knees to knees. We're very close to each other in a circle. That's beautiful. The reason I started drawing was I wanted to see these things visually that I, I had in my head and I wanted to be able to show my kids. I had a realization that in order to convey this to my kids, I needed to be acting it out physically. And I also needed to like bring stories. So we started reading some classic stories like St. George and the Dragon. The reason being the, the same patterns of reality that underlie the feast ritual underlie St. George and the Dragon which is actually a feast ritual. And the copy of St. George and the Dragon that we have, illustrated by Trina Sharp-Hyman, it's beautiful. And at the moment that George slays the dragon, the city pours out of the gates and they surround George and the young women have garlands woven for George's maiden. And the young men are looking in awe at George. And there's a spontaneous feast. It's just like, you know, at a football game when somebody does the perfect 
thing, just the right thing at just the right moment. I mean, the sports, all of our sporting events are pieces of the feast. We have, in fact, many of the pieces of the feast. Latter-day Saint temple rituals are pieces of the feast because it was at the feast where religious initiations happened. And we do those religious initiations, but they're no longer in a feast context. But I started reading these archetypal stories to them. And what I realized is years before, as soon as my son had heard good stories, he would want to act them out. And I realized like what I had learned from the feast is you read, you learn the archetype and you act it out for yourself to absorb deep knowing instead of just the surface level information, propositional knowing, you get deep knowing that you can't even articulate if you act it out. And that's essentially what I learned is you've got to approach it like a child. Just start acting it out. You won't be able to articulate it. My son led the way by several years on that. I'm reminded of Jung's Red Book at this point. I think this is where he gets started too, you know, going into this and what comes out of it is the Red Book. Well, he sees the depth of archetypes and, and essentially everything becomes symbol to him. Everything. And our minds do the work of interpreting the symbol and whatnot and the meaning that it has for us individually, subjectively, but everything is a symbol. And that's the way dreams operate. Like I've had some wild dreams lately, like out of this world, like don't make any sense uh, in the context of who I think I am. And I'm like, why would I ever do that in a dream? Because the dream is playing out something else. It's a symbol. The symbols in the dream are meant to be interpreted and used in your life. I had this discussion with a friend of mine and we were driving on our way to the Pac-12 championship down in Vegas. I'm a big U fan and he is too. We went to college together. So we decided we're going to drive down to this. And a lot of people take sports in a, in a discussion like this, especially, and they're like, oh, that's really shallow. But sports are a symbol. Sports are a reenactment of cosmic struggles. The reason why they connect with us on such a deep level, that whole my team versus your team, good versus evil, it's like we're reenacting ritual by participating in this stuff, whether as actors or you know observers, we're participating in reenactments of rituals. And it's not just that, like we were driving down this lonely country road, nothing really there except telephone poles and, and sagebrush. And I, and I pointed to the telephone poles and I say, those are symbols in and of themselves. Like you look at that and you say, what is that? Well, it's wood. Well, what is wood except in the context of seeing in the bigger picture? And then all of a sudden wood represents communication. And so it becomes a symbol. It has power not only in its function, but it has power for us as we interpret that symbol of wood into what it actually does and means for us. So the ability to communicate across states or countries or even continents is bound up in the symbol of that telephone pole. You know, we don't think about this enough. We don't understand and contemplate enough the pervasiveness of symbol in our lives, but it's everywhere. And the things that we're most passionate about most frequently usually are symbols that have real ancient power for us. I strongly agree. One of the lessons that has come out or built on the platform of this of the year right was the idea of a spirit and what is a spirit. There's a tension in Latin-day Saint belief between our folk doctrine and our scriptural doctrine. The folk doctrine is your spirit is another body inside of your physical body and it's more refined matter and it looks like you. It probably sounds like you. When your physical body dies, your spirit body still walks around, right? It's very difficult to establish that just by study of scripture and that narrow definition. Because the scriptures describe spirit and even like the spirit of Christ as ideas, as light, as truth, as words, right? As Jesus said in John 6, 
the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. So much more ink in scripture is spent describing the nature of spirits as pattern rather than the nature of spirits as bodies. And I'm not disputing whether we have a spirit body, but I'm saying that much more important, apparently, in the scriptural view is the idea that that telephone pole isn't 20,000 or 100,000 or a million toothpicks, which that's the same amount of wood, right? It's that many atoms, but it's given its function and purpose. And importantly, the wires attaching it to all the other telephone poles. And once it's given a meaningful order in itself and a meaningful relationship to everything else, it's brought into existence. Even its existence, as we understand and experience it, is symbolic because the telephone pole is a, a gathering into order and then a setting in relationship to other things. You remind me of the, you know, the, in Hebrew versus Greek thought, our thought is Greek. We inherited it. It's part of our culture. Even if you've never read Plato or Aristotle, you think like Plato and Aristotle. You have to go explore other ways of thinking, right? In Greek thought, we think creation means something comes to be. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we say not out of nothing, but out of pre-existing matter. But still, you're talking about when we think something exists, we think that means it has extension, dimension, you know, weight. We can, all these quantifiable things, they're not the, the qualitative things. In Hebrew thought, and so when we read Genesis, right, what we're looking at is things are given a name and a function. It reminds me of the, of the naming and blessing of a child, right? You, you give a name and a function, and that's how something comes to be. And going back to, you know, whether it's sports or whether it's gathering in a circle, researchers have found that when we get together in circles and tell stories, or if you're all in, you know, in fandom at the football game, it's probably the same, I imagine, but certainly in storytelling, everybody syncs up. We can measure your brainwave frequencies and everybody's in sync. This is what happens. Yeah, so that's that's the essence of the year right. You are creating people. And at many of them, they're given new names. It's the new birthday common to all the people of the civilization, like King Benjamin. Again, you're right. He gathers the people to the temple. He gives them a name. He establishes a covenant, establishes them as a people. This is what I wanted for my family. And I'm drawing it out. I'm drawing pictures. And as I'm drawing these pictures, I'm like, this feels like I'm having a vision. I see it in my mind and then I draw it out. I capture it. And then I give it to other people and they see the vision, right? They see the same vision I saw. And they're able to see because I'm very direct. They see the structure right there because that's really what I'm trying to draw. I'm trying to draw the structure that I'm seeing, the pattern underlying it, I'm trying to draw the spirit of whatever it is. So it clued me into this idea that art is visions and that visions are works of art and ritual is the ultimate art and ritual art and visions are all tools of mediating between pattern and materiality. You're allowing the underlying spirit to structure material reality. You're introducing a new underlying structure and it reorganizes the material reality. And then by restructuring your material reality, you're engineering the spirits inside of you. So it's this beautiful interplay between the material and the spirit. So I've come to see ritual as like a technology for engineering. And this sounds very crass, but a technology, let's say for sculpting or conducting a chorus of spirits within you. 
Because really, material, that's what we can affect. That's what we can touch. We can move it around. And apparently, if you move the material around just right, it gives you the Christmas spirit. Who knew? If you spice your cider just right, and if you light the fire in the fireplace, and if you're generous in your gift giving, and if you sing the right songs, and if you give the right hugs and wear the right sweater, you get this feeling that you can hardly put your finger on called the Christmas spirit. And everybody knows what that feels like, you know, who's familiar with the archetype of Christmas. And a little kid could make a Santa Claus costume and act like Santa Claus. And the kid down the street can do it too. And they would act out the same Santa Claus. So I'm really tripping lately on the power of ritual and the capacity of both ritual and art and let's say language and song, those four as means by which we can dabble in and fiddle with and build, elevate or desecrate spirits. Well, I'm going to add one element to the, the three or four you just named and it's space, sacred spaces. The thing that I've learned over 22 years or so of parenting the thing that you're describing is so key and people will call it tradition. You want to have family traditions, but traditions are always built around rituals. They're always repetitive. They involve certain words or certain places or certain actions done in a certain way. And that's called a tradition. And traditions are no different whatsoever. They really shouldn't be differentiated at all from ritual in terms of their impact on children and on families and the effect they have on the developing mind and moving into adulthood. Ritual becomes the representation of everything your childhood was. And there can be really powerful negative rituals. I'm thinking of the spiral of alcoholism or abuse or something like that. That's a powerful negative ritual that will impact that child for the rest of their lives. They'll be in therapy for a long time to try to figure out the meaning of that ritual yeah. and that pattern repeated. But there's also extremely powerful positive rituals and traditions that will positively impact your family for the rest of their lives. They will look back on that with so much fondness, just like we do. I mean, I don't know about how you guys were raised in terms of your family life, but I have these incredibly powerful memories and all of my memories that stick with me, that actually last and aren't buried in the unconscious somewhere, they're attached to ritual. I'm reminded of another book, something you said when you said technology, right? You used the word technology in relation to storytelling. Angus Fletcher wrote a book called Wonderworks. Here's a guy who is both a scientist and an artist in some sense. He studied literary theory or criticism or something like that. And he says the way it's being done is just a waste of everybody's time. He sees literature as a technology, and he takes you in his book through time and shows advances in that technology and how it helps us make meaning out of our experience. Hmm. I think as materialists in the modern world, we're at a hyper disadvantage for dealing with a lot of our problems. Like you were saying, Riley, so many of our problems come from negative ritual. And so the solution can't be purely material because it's a spiritual problem. That's not to say it's caused by a moral failing of the person suffering it. That's not what I mean by a spiritual problem. What I mean is it's a problem in the underlying pattern of how their life is organized and how that pattern is then shooting up into the material world in their actions. And in my own family, there were patterns and cycles of violence that the solution for ended up being spiritual rebirth in my mother. Many generations of violence before her who stopped immediately 
and absorbed it and said, I don't want that for my kids. And nobody taught her methodically, how do you stop a cycle of violence? She went through a rebirth, a rebirthing experience and said, no, it's not okay. And her being was transformed in that process. And I think we undersell the value of positive ritual as the solution to negative ritual, because by and large, we're materialists. It's interesting you say that that would be the reason why we we bypass positive ritual, because our interaction with materials are so ritualistic anyway. One of our things with our families, we like to play card games and board games and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's full on symbol, symbol, symbolic ritual being played out right there. And it's the cosmic struggle, good and evil and all that stuff. And and we're just not seeing it for what it is. Like we're we're playing it as if it's just a game. But games are reenactments. Yeah. Games are reenactments. We connect with those. When people say, Oh, I don't want, you know, a life of religious ritual. You know, I, I want to be free flowing. All they're saying is, I want all my rituals to be unconscious and I want them to function in the dark out of my out of my consciousness. Or disconnected from an institution. I want my rituals yeah, not, yeah, yeah. not to be told to me from the pulpit. This is how you will do your ritual. You know, they, they're just more autonomy. Sure, sure. Going back to Plato and Aristotle, I'm reminded of what Ayn Rand said about this an analog at least, right? She's talking about those who think they don't need to study philosophy. And so they just end up with a mongrel philosophy because they've taken in all these undigested slogans from the philosophers and they haven't actually examined them. And they may even hold contradictory beliefs that they've never looked at side by side to realize that this belief I hold contradicts this other belief I hold and to deal with that. Yeah. Latter-day Saints have that going on in spades because institutionally, our week-to-week worship is informal. It's low church. But it's not actually not ritualized. All of our interactions at church are ritualized. Like You can predict a lot of what people are going to say, how they're going to walk, how they're going to hold themselves, what way they're going to orient. But what we've lost is a conscious engagement with the vision underlying the worship. This drawing I did of the Nephite gathering, where Jesus gathers the Nephites into circles within circles, Right after that, there's a chapter break that was inserted into the text. And if you ignore that chapter break and read the text as it originally stood, right after this circular arrangement, he says, now sit down and bring me bread and wine. And in that cosmic arrangement, he gives the communion. He gathered them into not just a ritual, but a formal ritual. By that, I mean a ritual that is formed so that it discloses the structure that it's celebrating where our communion ritual, our sacrament that we do on Sunday is informal, not because it isn't ritualized, it's highly ritualized and everybody sits exactly where they're supposed to, but it's informal in the sense that the structure we're gathered into does not disclose the structure that we're celebrating or the pattern that we're celebrating. It's not a cosmic arrangement. You can't get, for instance, any longer in Latter-day Saint meeting houses, the idea that the host is consecrated in the Holy of Holies, and that the bishop and the other clergy on the stand are icons of the divine council in the Holy of Holies. And you can't get the idea, because of the order in which we do things, that the weekly liturgy is the incarnation of Christ, and then the second coming of Christ. You can't get that. But in the Orthodox Church, what they do is they gather into this same cosmic structure with Christ at the center, surrounded by angels and little ones, 
But instead of being in a circle, they do it in a slice, just like the tabernacle of Moses. So they're in a living vision of what they're gathering in with the divine council depicted in physical iconography and painting, in physical iconography in the shape of the church, and in physical iconography with the clergy in front of them. So it's visions within visions within visions. And then, this is very interesting, I learned this week, they stamp the bread when they bake it with a special stamp that divides the loaf up into nine parts for the nine orders of angels. In the center is Christ. To his right is a portion for Mary. It has a big M on it. To his left are nine little triangles, again, for the nine choirs of angels. Thrones, principalities, powers, dominions, cherubim, seraphim. And then as they cut up the loaf, they tear off little bits of bread. So they put the, the piece for Christ, they put the piece for Mary, they pe- put the nine pieces for the angels, and then they put little pieces on the plate for the people on the prayer roll, living and dead. So you have the council gathered in the church, you have the council depicted in paint, and then on the tray for the sacrament, you have the body of Christ, the whole divine council gathered there. And it looks like a little divine council, Christ, Mary, angels, the congregation. And then they put over that something called the asterisk or star cover. And it's a little architectural dome that they put on the plate. And then that plate comes coursing out of the Holy of Holies to fill all of creation. Just like it at the end, Christ with all the angels will stream from heaven onto earth and sanctify and renew creation. The Orthodox Christians do that same cosmic ritual that Christ did with the Nephites. And that is formal in the sense that it discloses what it's celebrating. I envy them. I have, I have holy envy for them for doing that. Holy envy is a good thing. Starting out as a Catholic, I have a lot of holy envy for kind of that way of being and acting out your ritual and religion. There's a sense in which we're so Protestantized that we, we look at that and we say, there's so much pride in that, you know, your holy vestments and all your, your iconography. And, and Jesus doesn't want that. He just wants your humility. Maybe. And, and that's totally fine. But like, but what do we need in order to connect with God? All these ways of connecting with God through the art and through the ritual, maybe it seems contradictory to some people, but the more stylized it is, the more it connects with us. And, mm, and you yeah. talked about making things explicit that maybe are intuitive. Maybe we understand some things internally, but when we make the intuitive explicit, especially for the youth and, and those that are younger, there's various modes of learning, right? And and until someone actually shows you what they mean in the action, you wouldn't put the dots together. Yeah. And like you're putting dots together for people right now that they've they've never connected. I guarantee it. So, mm. you know, there's a certain need for that again. And whether it's having more art in our chapels or a more explicit ritual, you know, I'm not trying to to steady the arc or steer that arc in, in any sense, but I just want people to look at how other religious traditions do things, not so much with judgment, but with a little understanding that there's a lot of purpose behind it. That structure came not over the course of a few decades in existence. These are thousand-year-old-plus churches that have developed their liturgy specifically to communicate the incarnation and communion with God. There's purpose behind it. I'm with you, Riley. You know, I feel like you know, I, I have a background as a Lutheran. And sometimes I feel like our church is denuded of symbols and symbolism, right? And, and we're moving even in the wrong direction because now the one temple where I could go see them, now they took them away, right, from Salt Lake City. And that's a shame. 
And yet, I'm not trying to reform the church, right? So what I want to do is, for the listener, is to say, as Riley, as you said, you can go borrow, you can have holy envy, you can borrow, you can bring it into your own experience, right? You can teach it to your children. As Robert said, it is our job as fathers to teach our families, right, along with our wives, to teach our children. And we can take charge of our own spiritual development. And this is what we're told to do, right? This is not news. I'm just reminding us, right? This is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that's, that's what I've found. And, and it's really the purpose behind my practice of art is to make the things that are hidden visible for myself and for others, because art makes seership contagious. That's its function. And seership is the expansion of your ability to see reality. Art, and I, I mean art not just in visual art, but in architecture and in ritual, situates us. This is very good. This is John Verveke, who's interviewed with Jonathan Pajot. They've had great conversations. Your listeners are probably familiar with him, but he gave a talk recently about ritual and rationality and how ritual situates us in imaginal time and space. Not imaginary in the sense of fantastic or pretend, but imaginal, it's a space where we use our imagistic capacity to sow ourselves to reality, not to distance ourselves from reality. So it sets us in right relationship with God, with creation, with ourselves, with our families. And I think the deep power of art is to convey that. So you don't have to look at my art because the same patterns that I'm drawing are drawn in all kinds of religious iconography and they do it much better and they've been doing it thousands of years. But if you can see art and your experience of art as you having a vision, and if you can learn to see the structure that the artist is conveying, then suddenly you've absorbed a piece of their seership. And then when you go to the table and you eat the bread and you drink the water or drink the wine, you're now doing it with the vision inside of you. And it, even though you're in the middle of a disorganized rabble, it can structure how you approach the ritual. I absolutely love your use of the term seership here as an expansion of ability to see. I mean, that seems like a very obvious meaning, but we've attached so much meaning to the title prophecy or revelator that we just say, okay, well, that's contained in a person, that guy over there. Seership, we talked about this pre-show. You studied Joseph Smith a lot. You spent yeah. like a decade studying Joseph Smith, his messages, his methodology as it relates to communion with God and how he communicated that to his followers, acolytes, whoever you want to talk about. And you see in Joseph Smith, a person who's made himself a conduit for the expansion of our ability to see. And this is exactly how I see Joseph Smith. Joseph is giving us a model or template for how to expand our personal revelatory capacity. So he's using materials, physical materials. This is kind of like, you know, we don't talk about this so much anymore, but the seer stones and the Urim and Thummim and the sort of Laban, these are materials and they convey additional meanings beyond what we already understand. For Joseph Smith, what I think the majority of his mission is, is to teach us. And he even says this, I teach them correct principles, not commandments. He never says, I teach them commandments and then they govern themselves. No, because commandments are coercive in nature, just the very nature of them. But persuasion comes through understanding, practicing, and seeing the purpose and goodness of a principle acted out for ourselves. And so I think he's teaching his principles for acting. 
and we've mistaken kind of the finger for the moon thing. And we've said, okay, well, the thing he was pointing to, that's that's the principle. It's not a commandment. It's the principle. Yeah. And we're supposed to use that to see the moon. Joseph Smith explicitly wanted us to become seers and over and over tried everything he could to work himself out of a job as anybody's mediator with God. I'm not saying he did that perfectly, but that's what he said he was trying to do. And his constant encouragement was, no, you need to see for yourself and you need to learn to perceive for yourself. And I think that teaching correct principles is a perfect extension of that idea. It's very interesting. Orthodoxy, Orthodox Christianity has been an object of study for me lately because after 10 years of studying Joseph Smith and after a year and a half of studying the feast archetype, I suddenly saw these same patterns cropping up in orthodoxy, which I'd never looked at closely. And one of the things I got clued into was a guy named St. Maximus the Confessor, who wrote back in the 600s AD, he wrote a book called The Mystagogy, which is an exploration of the meaning of their weekly liturgy. Your listeners are, I'm sure, very familiar. But five months ago, I wasn't familiar. If you'd asked me, well, what's the liturgy? I wouldn't have told you. But so if any of your listeners are like me and they were just Latter-day Saints that don't know about orthodoxy, the way I would explain it is, well, in our temples, we do individual initiation rites to make kings and priests, queens and priestesses. In the Orthodox Church, they do individual initiation rites in their temples, which are their churches, to make bishops. And the bishop's job, having been endowed, is now he's prepared to officiate in the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood, chief among them being the communal liturgy of the Eucharist. So he's enthroned in the service over which he will then preside. The liturgy, the divine liturgy, or in Catholic churches called the Mass, is the communal component that's the counterpart to our individual initiation rites. And St. Maximus, you, you could almost just put him right in Alma chapter 12. He says that the initiation into the mysteries by participation in the liturgy is how we go from being fully disconnected with God to being fully one with God. And that path is the dawning of seership by degrees. So you start with repentance and just sorting out some of the mechanics of your life, getting rid of obvious like disharmony with God. And then you embark on a contemplative phase. We would understand it as like the terrestrial phase, which is you're learning to see the invisible structures behind reality. This is St. Maximus describing this. So he's describing it as the dawning of seership. And the final ultimate seership is unity with the Trinity, the theophany, where you're one with Christ and one with God. But St. Maximus describes salvation as it's communicated through the liturgy, almost exactly the way Joseph Smith describes it, and the way you just described it. Teach them correct principles. It's not just teach them information. It's convey the patterns of reality to them that will allow them to live in harmony with the way the universe really is, the way the world really is. It sets themselves in a mode of being that's capable of enduring perennially. I mentioned this again in the pre-show, but I think the Word of Wisdom is a perfect example of a principle that's been mistaken for a commandment. I mean, it says, number one, first of all, we all know this. It says explicitly, this is not a commandment, okay? And that should have been our first clue that this is a principle. So to recount the event, everyone knows Emma walks in on the school of the prophets and they're upstairs and they're spitting on wood floors with their chewing tobacco and it's disgusting, right? It goes way beyond this. The word wisdom may have been initially prompted by Emma's disgust, but it wasn't just simply a convenient prescription for 
Emma's complaint. It's much deeper than that. And we all know this. Intuitively, we know this. Joseph Smith takes this to the Lord. I mean, it's not like he said, should we stop spitting chewing tobacco on the floor? This is an obvious answer. No, he expands upon it. So again, seership, an expansion of our ability to see, right? He sees this as a microcosm of a much bigger question. Maybe it's not good for us to partake of chewing tobacco, not only for the mess it creates, but maybe it's bad for our bodies. Well, if chewing tobacco is bad for us, maybe there's a whole host of things that are bad for us. You know what? I'm going to spend some time in awareness, in contemplation, considering for myself what is good and bad for me. He takes it to the Lord. The Lord gives him, Joseph, here's your prescription. The reason why I don't think the word of wisdom is binding in that sense upon each individual is because just from a purely nutritional standpoint, there are people alive who cannot tolerate wheat, for instance. This is just one example, okay? People cannot tolerate wheat. These people with celiac disease, for instance, right? And you could say, okay, they're the exception. Well, so fine, but that's just one of the many prescriptions or or restrictions in the word of wisdom. I think it's much more valuable to see the word of wisdom as a principle with a promise, just like it says it is, a principle with a promise, to consider the things that we consume, how they affect us in our lives, because we're individuals, we're unique children of God, See how they affect us. Be contemplative about that. Be aware. Maybe take some notes, mental notes, physical notes, whatever. And then after you've studied it out in your mind, as the scriptures say, then take it to the Lord. And the Lord revealing for you through the principle, the truth that applies to you, Bob Sontag, me, Riley Risto, you, Christopher Hurtado. That's my soapbox. When you were describing Joseph's process of receiving it, I was it brought to mind that scripture, I think it's Doctrine and Covenants 50, when the word is preached by the spirit of truth, do you receive it by the spirit of truth or by some other spirit? If Joseph got in a revelatory mode to receive that, to write it down, how do you then need to receive it from him in a revelatory mode? It has to be the same medium of transfer. You can't receive it disproportionate to your capacity to receive revelation for yourself, I think. John Verveke in that talk about the function of ritual, this actually very much pertains to what you're talking about at the Word of Wisdom. He was giving examples from, from the world that people don't think of as ritual, but are ritual and illustrate the function of ritual. And one of those examples was if you are somebody who works with like retirement investment accounts, you want to go and sell retirement investment accounts to people. They're a good idea. They should sell themselves. So you go to a university and you tell them, well, here's reasons one through five why you should invest money in a retirement account for the future. It doesn't have to be with me. Just start a 401k or an IRA and start investing. Nobody's going to sign up. You can go back next year and you say, okay, everybody close your eyes. Imagine yourself at 70 years old. See your hunched back, see your buckling knees. Look at this old and frail person. Look at all they've been through. How do you want to treat that person? Like, don't you want to go give them a hug? You guide them through a ritual of visualization. Then your rate of sign up goes through the roof. This is like an actual experience he's describing. So the question is like, Joseph received the word of wisdom as a revelation. Ritual might be a means of passing on the true underlying principle 
Like what if you guided somebody through a, a visualization ritual where they set themselves in relationship to themselves, not in the future sense. It's, I imagine you at 70 if you smoke, but it's more like just imagine you now as a person sitting in front of you, or even imagine you say as a three-year-old, something to like open their heart of compassion and then say, you know, how do you want that person to feel? How do you want their body to function? Do you want them to be sick? Do you want them to go to the doctor? I think it would be interesting to try that in a class, especially with young people, because then you're going past the information and the list of do's and don'ts, and you're going right down to the unconscious mind and how they relate to themselves. And then out of the deep well of their soul can come the actual actions they need to take in the moment. And they don't have to think, well, mommy says I shouldn't smoke, so I shouldn't smoke. It's like, how do I want to feel? How do I want that body to feel myself? There could be powerful ways of communicating principles in scripture that maybe we haven't explored as a tradition. Well, this one in particular can become a mode of communion with God. Instead of just the whole list, you know, the checkbox, whatever, it can actually become a mode of communion that can deepen our relationship with God and give us real deep insight into ourselves as a as a created body of God. Like for me personally, I know that within my own personal word of wisdom, walnuts are forbidden. I don't tolerate them well. You know, they give me canker sores on my tongue. Uh, pineapple's the same. So I shouldn't have walnuts then, Riley? <laughs> you shouldn't have walnuts because I shouldn't have walnuts. Is that how it works? Walnuts. Yes. That's how it currently works. <sighs> Wow. I don't, I mean, I hate, I really don't like to be critical, but it's like the principle here is so much deeper than the prescription. Right. As a matter of fact, you say prescription, that's a perfect segue for me because I've been prescribed what is proscribed. In consultation with my bishop, it's okay to be prescribed what is proscribed. And the proscription no longer applies to he who has a prescription. <laughs> well, and all of this stuff, at least in America, is really subject to the state. That's a sore spot for me is that we've kind of outsourced our practice, our religious practice to what's allowed by by the state because we take really a sacrosanct and above above all these prescriptions or proscriptions, the twelfth article of faith, which was you know a response to a newspaper reporter, you know right, yeah, we say that the state is what determines what's good for our body or not, you know for me, you know that which is not proscribed which is pharmaceutical, is, well, because it's not proscribed, that means it's allowed, right? My personal word of wisdom tells me, don't touch that stuff. <laughs> Stay away from it. And I have, you know, healers, whether doctors or otherwise. My bishop prefers doctors, so I found a doctor who prescribed to me that which is proscribed and which is natural and which the state has made illegal, but that heals me. And I found healing. I want to play devil's advocate a little bit, but the word of wisdom isn't a great ground to do it. If we were having a conversation about the importance of grasping the underlying spirit, which is much more important, say, than engaging in the ritual, like the word of wisdom might be a good example of it if we actually adhered to the revealed word of wisdom. But the proscriptions that we adhere to aren't what was written. So I'm not really in favor of, you know, multiplying and altering and changing commandments. But for people who feel, say, maybe a reluctance to engage in something that is structured and institutionalized and mediated, like maybe they want their religious practice to be alone and purely contemplative and just like in their head. I want to make an appeal for the value of bringing out and acting out together religious ideas. 
And again, the word of wisdom is not a perfect example of this because we aren't really doing it the way it was given anyway. But ritual is a tool for working with physical matter to shape underlying pattern. So by engaging in a good ritual, when they're really good, like say they've been tuned by thousands of years of trial and error, or they've just been revealed by God, and, and you're doing them like as well as you can in purity, then those rituals are designed to reach down through your conscious mind into your unconscious mind and start rearranging things in an, into a divine pattern. Well, that's the temple, right? I mean, the, the yeah, temple liturgy exactly. is maybe the best ground to have this discussion because like you described, there are people who are fairly attuned to being hermits, you know, maybe that's in their nature and that's fine. But communicating to them the value of communal ritual and the temple is a perfect example of that. It brings you into sacred space and sacred time and makes you a sacralized creation because you're participating in the recreation. It's not only a reenactment, but it's actual creation. You're doing the thing. Yeah. And feasting might be a good way of actually doing what the word of wisdom invites us to do. Feasting is like you're using food as a tool of communion with your brothers and sisters. And it's magical, the food's capacity to bring people together, like physically at the table, but also to just the example from the Al your Alchemy interview that long time ago, the body of Christ is dismembered dispersed and then gathered again remembered it's remembered as we come together and atone with ourselves and with each other the loaf is made whole again and that's like every meal can be a little taste of that i mean isn't so much of the word of wisdom like do eat food do eat good food eat in health and happiness and i think that we overlook the positive aspect and there can be rituals involved with that too that we could we could make the most of I love that. It's, I think it's worth repeating the idea that, that when you remember, we think that this is a mental operation. And even, Robert, you've been talking about things that we do in our minds, and, and I don't want to call you out where I'm learning. You know, I, I have a Sufi practice. I have a master teaching me because I spend a lot of time in my mind, and he's trying to get me into my heart. And so we think that remembering is a, a mental operation. What we're doing is we've torn apart the body, right? The bread is torn, and then it's remembered in the community of Christ, in the body of Christ. In the Bible, we read, your body is a temple, and people think that this is my body is a temple. Each of our bodies is a temple. And maybe that's a good thought to have, and that can be helpful, and certainly, you know, it can help me think about what I put into my body, which is how it's used, and that's fine. But that's not what it says in the Bible. The you is plural, and so that you is the community of Christ, and that remembering happens in community. In the New Testament, it talks about this in Paul's epistles, saying that the eye shouldn't say to the hand, I have no need of thee, or the nose to the ear. Like All of the members are necessary in the community. And I would expand community beyond our ward. I mean, I think that's obvious, but maybe not so much to other people. When we talk about the body of Christ, we're talking about the larger body of Christ, the whole breadth of Christian belief. One is as necessary as the other, and we benefit from learning from these, as Bob, as you've outlined with your study of orthodoxy. There's a lot that can be learned from these other Christian traditions, for sure, and non-Christian traditions, for that matter. And that makes me think of another thing I, I, I want to repeat. I've said these things before, but then, you know, who knows how long ago that was. I'm glad you heard it, Robert companionship, right? This word companion, it comes from the Latin com panis, with bread. 
What do we do when we see an old friend? We haven't seen him in a while. Oh, hey, man, we need to get together and have lunch, right? And we don't think to invite our enemies ever to the table with us. Maybe we should. Maybe that's how they become friends, right? We eat together, we share a meal, and something magical happens in that space. The other thing is, you know, we've been talking about the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church and whatnot. I think as Latter-day Saints, and it goes back to maybe Bruce R. McConkie and the Church of the Devil as the Catholic Church, first edition of Mormon Doctrine, they told McConkie he couldn't call his book. The brethren told him, you can't call your book Mormon Doctrine because it's not. And he did it anyway, and they at least made him take that out And, and after the first edition. But we as Latter-day Saints have so much more in common with Catholics than we realize, and even more in common with the Eastern Orthodox Church. We're not Protestants, and we look like Protestants. I personally feel like the great apostasy is creeping back in. You know, it's been creeping back in since the beginning. Yeah, that's very much a realization. It reframed for me what what apostasy was and what God's work was attempting to do through Joseph Smith, because I see how much was preserved in Orthodox Christianity. And I, I almost get the idea, like, I don't think that Orthodox Christianity is the end goal of Mormonism as it was rolling out through Joseph Smith. But I do see an interesting idea, like when Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, people were saying, hey, stop your followers from shouting Hosanna and praising you. And he said, if they held their peace, then the rocks would cry out. And so think about that in in terms of where the Orthodox Church could not go in the frontier of America, and there were no Orthodox people and no Orthodox churches, the rocks cried out. And out of the rock came bubbling up this weird form of Orthodoxy with many of the same patterns of reality and the same consciousness of the divine council just sprung up out of the earth. I had this vision lately, going back to the body of Christ, of the temple waters flowing out of that temple, which is the body of Christ. And each week we gather to the table, even if we're not gathered in a circle, even if we're not gathered in that hierarchy, reflecting the ontological ladder to God, still that's underneath. It's hidden, but it's underneath what we're doing. In that moment, we're acting out being the body of Christ. So you can imagine from that moment flowing water, and water flows out of the chapel and out of the front doors of the church and out of your own belly. And then it flows down into the ground and where it touches, plants grow and trees grow tall and they grow strong and the fruit ripens and people in your bubble become healthier and they become happier. And and the space around the chapel and the space around you become this little extension of Eden. I feel like you're describing your next work of art, Bob. What a beautiful image. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. And for the listener, we're on Skype using video. We're not publishing a video even on YouTube. I wish we were. Maybe someday. Please donate. (laughs) But listen, when Robert is describing his vision, his eyes are closed. When he comments on it, he opens his eyes. But when he's describing the vision, his eyes are closed. I can't wait to see this one, Robert. I don't know how I'll do that. It's beyond me. (laughs) This has been a lot of fun, guys. We're running up on our time limit. We're going to have to have you back. That's all there is to it. I, I hope For you've sure. enjoyed it as much as we have. It's been I great getting that. to know you, to hear your vision and how you place ritual at the top of the value hierarchy in your family. That's something I think we all can learn from. So appreciate you very much uh, being here. I'm going to give you the last word. Is there anything else that you wanted to say that was left unsaid? Oh, I don't think so. I think I got to everything on my list. Chris? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us, Robert. It was my pleasure. Where can listeners look for your art if they want to see it? 
Boy, that's a good question. So you can look me up on Facebook, Bob Sontag. There can't be that many Bob Sontags on there. And two N's. Yeah, two N's. It's the German spelling of Sunday. And my the whatever I post as far as art goes should be public. So you should be able to look at it there. All right. And then yeah, you can buy a print if you want too. So send me a message. I'm right. waiting for your children's book to come out. Your your children's coloring book. You're gonna do that, right? At the rate I'm going, it, it will be when my children are parents themselves. I hope not. Well, there's always <laughs> the next generation. They'll need yeah. it too. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Bob. All right. Thanks again, Bob. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, y'all.